Georgia Billison is a retired Southern Baptist pastor who worships with us here at Life Journey Church. When George was just a, a young dad, uh, one evening he, his wife, his two little boys sat down at the dinner table. George put two pieces of fried chicken on his plate and then one piece of fried chicken on each of his little boy's plates. His youngest boy, four years old, said, Daddy, I want two pieces of chicken too. George said, eat the first piece that I gave you and I promise I'll give you a second. His little boy got a really sad look on his face. This just doesn't seem fair. How come dad gets to start with two pieces and I have to start with one? To try to take some of the edge off the moment, George said to his little boy, why don't you say grace for us? Why don't you say the prayer over the food? So they all bowed their heads, closed their eyes, and George says this is what his little boy prayed. Jesus, he says that's how he said Jesus back then. Jesus, he said, take one of the pieces of chicken off dad's plate and fly it over to my plate. George says, I cracked my eyes open, half worried that Jesus was going to actually answer his prayer and the chicken was going to fly over to his place. Imagine how disappointed George's little boy was when Jesus didn't answer his prayer. 12, 15 years ago, my great niece Cameron said to my sister one day as they were driving in the car, Grandma, she said, Yesterday, I asked Jesus to pick up my balloon and move and bring it over to me, and he didn't do it. My sister patiently explained that God doesn't do for us what we can do for ourselves. From the time we're knee-high to a grasshopper, we start hearing about this thing called prayer, and we find ourselves puzzling over it. How does prayer work? What should I say when I pray? What's the, the right way to do it? Even as we grow into adulthood, we often still continue to puzzle over prayer. Once years ago at Princeton University, a, a, a doctoral student walked up to Albert Einstein after a lecture and, and asked him what he would recommend, what topic he would recommend that he select for his dissertation. The student asked Einstein, what of all the topics that have been addressed in the world, what's left for original dissertation research? What would you recommend? And Albert Einstein said to him, find out about prayer. We must find out about prayer, by which I assume he must have meant study the science of prayer. What is it that motivates people to pray, and, and does prayer work, and if so, how does it work, and how does the energy of prayer affect the energy in the world around us? For all of us, like Einstein, there is a certain mystery to prayer, which is probably why Jesus' disciples once stopped Jesus in his tracks and asked him, Luke 11:1, 1, Lord, teach us to pray. 
And according to Luke, that's the question that caused Jesus to give us what we know today as the Lord's Prayer. Jesus' point in giving us that prayer was not so that we would always only pray exactly the words of that prayer. It's beautiful to recite the Lord's Prayer, but Jesus didn't give us that prayer primarily for recitation. He gave it to us primarily as a teaching tool, as a kind of model prayer to illustrate for us the four most important things we should say in prayer. The four most important things we should ask for in prayer. So over the next three weeks, before Palm Sunday and Easter, we're going to do a deep dive into the Lord's Prayer, asking, what is Jesus trying to teach us through this prayer? We're going to start today with the number one thing, the most important thing Jesus teaches us we should ask for in prayer. Do you know what that is? Let's ask for guidance. Jesus. Our prayer today is very simple. We want to ask the same thing your disciples did. Lord, teach us to pray. Help us to understand better. We ask in your holy name. Amen. Before we dive into the most important thing we should ask in prayer, at the outset of the Lord's Prayer, Jesus raises two points that provide critical context that will help us best understand what is the most important thing for us to ask for in prayer. So let's cover those preliminary points first so that we have the context. The first preliminary point is a reminder to us that how we address someone says a lot about who they are and how we relate to them. For example, here at Life Journey Church, when people approach me, sometimes they will address me as your holiness. <laughs> it's embarrassing, but it happens. All right, so it... It's happened once in 27 years, and the person was being sarcastic, and the person was my spouse, but <laughs> maybe one day, someday, someone will genuinely address me that way. In the meantime, most people who are new to our church get to know me and refer, address me as Pastor Jeff, which is perfectly fine. But as you get to know me better, you will come to realize that really, I would just prefer that you call me Jeff. Because Jesus teaches us that in spiritual community, we all have important roles to play. There's not a hierarchy. There are not titles that some get and, and some don't. So as people get to know me better, most of the time they segue from, hey, Pastor Jeff, to just Jeff. And if you get to know me really well, you might even feel comfortable enough to give me a nickname. Years ago, Doug Willis, some of you know Doug, he... He's a, 
Uh, hey, Doug, he's probably online today. He lives out in Newcastle, and, and uh, he's even older than I am, so driving all the way back here uh, every Sunday is difficult for him. But, but uh, years ago, when, when he was physically present with us in worship, Doug once decided to give me a nickname. He started referring to me as Pastor Prime. And I thought, that's pretty cool, right? Deion Sanders, Prime Time, Pastor Prime. Until I realized that what he was actually saying was, Past your Prime. Pastor <laughs> Prime. <laughs> he actually did that. But in any event, with your spouse, with a child, with a beloved pet, you might even give them your own pet name, Boo Boo or baby doll or, you know, whatever. How we address someone says a whole lot about who they are and how we relate to them. And that's where Jesus begins his prayer, by teaching us how we should address God and what he says might surprise you. Take a look. He opens the prayer this way, Matthew 6, 9, our Father who art in heaven. You say, well, Jeff, that's nothing unusual in that. This is a classic example of how much nuance can get lost in translation. Remember, Matthew's gospel was originally written in ancient Greek. The Greek word translated as father there, the Greek word that Matthew used was pater, which in Greek simply means father. Still nothing unusual there. But Jesus' primary language was not Greek. Jesus' primary language, his spoken language was Aramaic. And elsewhere, the New Testament tells us the precise Aramaic word that Jesus used in this, the Lord's Prayer, and in his other prayers. The Aramaic word that Jesus used is Abba, A-B-B-A, -A. Abba. And scholars tell us that Abba is the word that little Jewish toddlers learning how to speak, it's the word they would be taught to refer to their father. And scholars say it was, it was a, well, the closest English equivalent, if we were to translate it from Aramaic into English directly, the closest English equivalent would be something like dada. Papa, the first way a tiny little child would begin referring to a beloved father. And that's a very intimate, a very vulnerable way of addressing someone. Even Jewish children that grew into adulthood would continue throughout their lives to refer to a beloved father or grandfather as Abba, Papa. And here, in this passage, Jesus is inviting us to dare to address God that way, to dare to come into the presence of God as a beloved child. We tend to get so afraid of God. We can get so caught up in the, in the grandeur of God that, that we find ourselves 
intimidated, maybe even a bit frightened to approach God in direct one-on-one conversation. And, and when we do, our tendency is to be very formal, to get on our knees, to fold our hands, to bow our heads, to close our eyes like a, a serf in front of a terrifying king. And the, and the words that we use to address this mighty one are things like God Almighty, God Lord, which means master, words like king. And it's perfectly fine and appropriate for us to address God with all of those terms, but there is a certain emotional distance in those terms. Here, in the Lord's Prayer, Jesus is daring us to come into the presence of God as a beloved child. Jesus is daring us to to understand that the way God feels about us is the way a loving father would feel about a beloved child the first time that child utters that father's name. Dada. (gasps) Did you hear what she just said? She said my name. Can you say it again, baby? Say it again. Dada. Imagine how that father feels. Jesus wants us to embrace that kind of relationship with God and to recognize that God wants us to relate to God in that way, not with fear and trembling, not with emotional distance, but with all of the confidence and comfort and emotional safety of a beloved child coming into the presence of a loving papa. Several years ago, the Washington Post did a a story about a 20-year-old woman named Samantha Holmes and her father, a lawyer named Pat Holmes. The story told how when Samantha was just a little girl, she got worried that when her dad was away from her at work every day, He might miss her and he might be lonely. So Samantha, as just a little girl, decided to give her dad a very special gift. She gave him one of her treasured stuffed toys and said, here, Daddy, you can take this with you to work so you don't feel lonely when you're at work. Can you imagine how that father felt when that little girl gives him one of her most precious possessions? So... The next day, getting ready for work, he put that stuffed toy in his briefcase and he he brought it to work with him. A lawyer walking into the law office, a stuffed toy, he sits it on his desk. I'm sure everybody was asking, what's with the stuffed toy, right? What Samantha didn't know until years later is that not just in the immediate aftermath of that gift, but for all of the years of her life without fail, even when she went away to school, Every day, Pat Holmes would put that stuffed toy in his briefcase, take it to work, set it out on the desk, put it back, take it back home with him. Even when he was on business travel, he would take that stuffed toy with him. He told the Washington Post, I don't like being away from my daughter, and and just having that stuffed toy there makes me feel like a little bit of her is there closer to me. Samantha said, Dad has always been sweet that way. I treasure the closeness of our relationship. 
the way Pat Holmes feels about his daughter, Samantha, that is how God feels about you. You are so precious in the eyes of God. Own that relationship with God. I dare you to begin practicing addressing God in prayer the way Jesus taught us to. Practice praying to Abba, Papa God, and let that stretch, mold, and shape your understanding of your relationship with God. In one of our uh, Oasis groups uh, several years ago, Oasis groups, for those who are new, are our small groups uh, that meet here in our church during the week, some in homes across town, some here at the church. Anybody's welcome, by the way, in our Oasis groups. There's brochures out in the social hall that list all the Oasis groups. But in one of our Oasis groups, there was a young man, Spencer Coe, who, when it was time for prayer, he would always address God the same way. And the way he would address God was, was kind of, it would kind of take us aback. The way he would always address God in prayer was the term Papa God. Papa God, he would say, thank you for this day. Papa God, we have some requests to bring for you today. And on the one hand, it felt a little bit, it, it felt so innocent and intimate that it felt a little uncomfortable. On the other hand, there was something beautiful, pure, and compelling about relating to God that way. I challenge you, try it, practice it. Better yet, Jesus challenges us to get in the habit of addressing God with that kind of intimacy. But don't misunderstand. Just because we draw close to God in a personal, intimate relationship, just because we relax in God's presence like a beloved child would in the presence of a loving papa, doesn't mean that we lose our awe for God. That's the other preliminary point that Jesus makes to give us context for the number one thing we should pray for in prayer. Look at what Jesus goes on to say in that first line of our Lord's Prayer. After he says, our Abba, our Papa, who art in heaven, he adds this phrase, hallowed be thy name. The Greek word translated as hallowed means greatly revered, venerable, deserving of respect because of importance and power. Yes, God is our Papa, but our Papa is awesome. Don't make the mistake of thinking that any of us can ever fully understand, much less control God. Don't be the kind of person who, who lives with the assumption that, that I've got God all figured out because that's just foolish. And you've encountered people like that, right? People who go to churches where the church sort of teaches that 
we're going to tell you everything about God. And when we're done with you, you'll know everything about God. And the kind of person that whatever spiritual question you might have, they know the right answer to it. They got it all figured out. Don't make that mistake. Yes, there's much that we can learn and know about God at our finite human level. But even when we've learned the maximum amount we finite creatures can know about the God who is, we are just scratching the surface of infinity. I like the way Sean Penn puts it. When everything gets answered, it's fake. The mystery is the truth. Leave room in your spiritual walk for the mystery of God. Max Dupree says, we don't grow by knowing all the answers, but rather by living with the questions. In Isaiah 55, 8, God puts it this way. My thoughts are not your thoughts, and your ways are not my ways. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. We, finite little creatures with our tiny little finite brains, must not make the mistake of thinking that we can tame or domesticate our heavenly papa. We must not make the mistake of thinking that we've ever got it all figured out, let alone that we can control or manipulate God. We barely scratch the surface of understanding God. In fact, our minds just couldn't fathom it. I, I can prove that to you. Let me ask you a simple question. Simple question. Is the cosmos, and when I say the cosmos, I mean everything that is, radiating out from us as far as theoretically one could go, everything that exists. Is the cosmos that we find ourselves in finite, or infinite. Let me take a little survey here. If you could travel faster than the speed of light in all directions out from you, how many people here say, I believe I would just keep going forever and ever because the cosmos is infinite? If that's your understanding of the cosmos, raise your hand. Okay, put them down. How many would say, if I could travel faster than the speed of light in all directions, I would eventually come to the edge of the cosmos? In other words, the cosmos is ultimately finite. If that's your view, raise your hand. Several. Several. For those of us who would say the cosmos is finite, there's an end out there somewhere, my question would be, well then, What's beyond that? You might say, well, empty space. To which I would say, ah, but that's still something. It's still space, even though it might be empty. What's, what's beyond space itself? And if you say nothing, I mean like complete nothing, that drives us back to like primitive questions like, well, then what? What does the cosmos rest on? Or what holds it together? And what does 
utter nothingness even look like? I cannot fathom. But for those of us who say that the, that the cosmos is infinite and it goes on forever and ever, really? I mean, never reaching the end? I mean, that then pushes us back to even deeper questions like, well, when did it begin and where did it come from? And if it always existed, it, it, it starts to blow our mind. And we might say, well, it began when God made the Big Bang or many Big Bangs creating all of the cosmos. Yes, but where did the primordial stuff that led to the Big Bang come from? And well, God made it. And, and when did God start? Well, God didn't start. And, and man, I don't know about you, but I can't think that I can't think through that. I can't begin to fathom that, not just that, but in our own cosmos. Scientists tell us, some scientists believe that in our own cosmos, the knowable cosmos, that there are galaxies out there that have 12, up to 12 dimensions of reality. We have four dimensions of reality we live in, right? The three dimensions of space and time. What does a 12-dimensional reality look like? I cannot fathom. And scientists tell us that, that black holes, some theoretical physicists believe that black holes, which by the way are very bright, they're not dark, but some theoretical physicists believe that when you enter a black hole, there is no longer space or time. What? A complete alternate reality. I don't know about you, but that makes my head hurt. Right? Yeah, please, just stop. You're making, you're creating a pain in my brain. Stop it. Say, say something dumb. Tell a dumb joke or something to distract me. Okay, I'm good at dumb, right? Why do scientists mistrust, distrust atoms? Because they make up everything. Okay, I can do better than that. All right, I can do better than that. What did the termite say when it walked into the bar? Is the bar tender here? Do you feel better now? Now that we've brought our thoughts back down to earth? <laughs> My point is simply, there is no way we can even scratch the surface of the greatness of our God. As the worship song says, God of creation, there at the start, before the beginning of time, with no point of reference, you spoke to the dark and fleshed out the wonder of light. And as you speak, a hundred billion galaxies are born. In the vapor of your breath, the planets form. If the stars were made to worship, so will I. I can see your heart in everything you've made. Every burning star, a signal fire of grace. If creation sings your praises, so will I. All of which finally brings us to the number one. We now have the context. God as loving Papa. God as greater than we can imagine. We now have the context for understanding the number one thing that Jesus teaches us that we should pray. And by the way, is it getting stuffy in here? It's supposed to get up to 78 outside today, I heard. 
my Lord. Uh, I, give us some circulation or some air. Don't freeze us out, but just give us a, a, a little air. All right? I don't want anybody to go to sleep before I tell my next dumb joke. Right? So, so now we have the context for understanding the number one prayer Jesus teaches us to pray. Are you ready for this? First, the territory we've already covered. Our Abba, our Papa, who art in heaven. Hallowed, venerable, great beyond imagination. Be thy name. And then the first petition in our Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That is not how we normally and instinctively pray. When we pray, most of the time, the direction of our prayer is, My kingdom come. God, please make my plans come to pass. My will be done. We tend to instinctively want to use prayer to get what we want. But then along comes Jesus saying, the ultimate prayer that you should pray is thy will be done. Think about it this way. If God loves you infinitely, and if God has all knowledge, wisdom, and power, in the final analysis, do you really want what you want? Or would you rather have what God wants for you? If you truly believe that God loves you infinitely and that God has all knowledge, power, and wisdom, do you really want to be in charge of your life? Or would you rather God be in charge of your life? Because let me tell you something, that Jesus is going to the very core of the difference between people who live life free and liberated and are able to enjoy the best of life versus people who fret and stew and get frustrated because they're not in control and they want to be in control. It all goes back to, can I genuinely pray that prayer? Thy will be done. Because if I can't, I'm in for a world of hurt. Because let me tell you something, life constantly disrupts and disappoints our plans. In case you haven't figured it out, you are not in control. I was reminded of that this past Thursday morning in a, in a small way. I was, I was still asleep in bed when the doorbell early in the morning is ringing at our front door. And I'm thinking, who in the world? Not just that, they rang it and then waited two seconds and then rang it again. I'm thinking, who in the world is at our front door at this time in the morning? So I scramble out of bed. I'm trying to get myself together to go down and answer the door. By the time I reach the top of the steps, the front door swings open. And there stands my spouse, David. <laughs> he normally leaves for work before, I, sometimes even before I get up. And he opens the door, and he says, my key broke off in the door. Now, our front door has just one deadbolt latch. That's the only way you can lock it. And you have to key it from both sides to get in and out. And so 
when he, at first he thought that meant he'd locked himself out, but then he discovered the door was stuck now in the unlocked position. And as soon as he said that, I knew what that meant. He has a pretty rigid work schedule he has to adhere to. So he couldn't hang around for two hours for a locksmith to come and get the key out of the door and, and make sure we could see Because we have cats at home and we can't leave our cats unlocked. I mean, what if somebody came in and stole them? <laughs> or raided the house or whatever. So it was like, we can't leave the door unlocked, but David's got to be at work. So that says, I have a more flexible schedule. It meant that I was the one who was going to have to change all my plans and wait for a locksmith to get to the house. And you know it takes him forever to get there. And so as soon as he said, my key broke off in the door, I knew that my plans for the day had been ruined. <laughs> Thursday is crunch day for me to get ready for Sunday. I mean, do you think it's easy to pull together all these dumb jokes? It's really hard work. And so Thursday is crunch day, and I had my day all planned out, carefully planned. Every available minute had been planned and scheduled. And now all of a sudden, before I even wake up, all of that is ruined, and I'm going to have to find a locksmith and disrupt my entire day. And I was not a happy camper. And that's, that's how we are, right? I want what I want, and when I don't get it, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to resent it. I'm going to wrestle with it. Why do bad things happen to us? That, that, I, I found myself thinking, why? Why is this happening, God? How does this make any sense? We, we've got to figure it out, right? We've got to know. And I suppose there are two possibilities why that and other bad things, much more serious than that, happen in our life. One possibility is that bad things, maybe God causes some bad things to happen in our life because God knows that the good that will come out of the bad will far outweigh the bad. That's one possibility. The other possibility is that maybe God has put us in a reality where random things can happen to us, where God steps back and, and we face certain random things that happen to us. Not because God is indifferent toward us, but because God knows that it's by confronting and wrestling with and responding to these random things that happen to us that we best stretch and grow our souls so that we can become all that God intended us to be and ready ourselves for eternity. So maybe God causes some bad things to happen. Maybe some bad things that happen to us are random things. But whichever way it is, it all leads to two clear conclusions. Number one, I am not in control. And number two, in any situation, God's will for me is to partner with God to make the best of it. And therefore, in any situation, my most powerful prayer can be, thy will be done. In other words, when something happens to me that's bad, even if it's random, even if God didn't want it to happen to me, what is God's will in that situation? God's will in that situation is that I partner with God to make the best of it. That I respond to that situation in a manner that is consistent with the highest values and purposes of God. Because if I don't, I'm just going to be miserable. But if I do, if I say, I don't know how we got here, God. I don't know why this is happening to me. But 
Work with me, God, so that we can make the best of it. What do you want to happen? How can I respond in this situation in accordance with your highest values and purposes? It's when we do that that we're able to live our best life. On Thursday morning, as soon as I reminded myself of that, my whole mood went from, why is this happening to me? Oh, my whole day is ruined, which is not productive, to, ah, okay, let's make the most of this, God. Show me how. I got a hold of a locksmith. Of course, it would be two hours before he could get there. So I had a leisurely breakfast. And then I sat down in the sunroom on a sunny day, and I slowly sipped a luscious cup of Ghirardelli mocha hot chocolate. Oh my goodness. Have you ever had it? It is to die for. It will cure whatever ails you. I recommend it highly. And yes, I am getting a product placement fee for featuring this in my sermon. I sat there and I enjoyed my mocha hot chocolate as the sun was radiating in. And then I took our dogs for a leisurely walk. And after that, Locksmith still wasn't there, so I went for a jog in the beautiful sunshine. And guess what? While I was jogging, all of a sudden, I, st I started the, the sermon for today just started to come together in my head. It's like God was giving it to me as a gift, and, and it was all coming together. And then when I finished jogging, the locksmith still wasn't there, so I cleaned out the litter box for the cats, which I hate to do, but it's always so good when it's done, right? Finally, the locksmith shows up. The lock gets fixed. I head off to church, and I ended up finishing the day later that day ahead of schedule, not behind schedule. I could have spent my day in resentment, anger, and anxiety. In this instance, at least, I had enough sense to do it God's way, Jesus' way. And what could have been a miserable day became a so much better day. That's why the most powerful prayer you will ever pray in any situation is Thy will be done. God, I want to partner with you to bring the best out of this situation by responding in a way that is consistent with your highest values and purposes. Remember when you were a kid? Your parents were in charge. They made all the decisions. You may have gotten a little bit of input, but they were going to be the deciders, right? And if you had loving parents, you could trust that. You could trust that whatever they decided we were going to do tomorrow or what... You could trust that because they were going to do what was best for you. And what did that do? That freed you up to just go along for the ride and to make the best of whatever happened. And now, in our, as we're older, we look back on that. And one of, for most of us, if we had good parents, some of our greatest days in life were when we were kids and we were carefree and we, did, and we weren't in control and we knew it. And so it just freed us up to, to make the best of whatever was. That's what God wants for us, the children of God. That's why Jesus said, except you become like a little child, you'll never enter the kingdom of heaven. You'll never enter spiritual life. Let me close with this. 
when I was a kid, my parents took me and my two sisters on an incredible vacation once. We drove from Indiana through Yellowstone up to Seattle, all the way down the West Coast with stops in San Francisco and Los Angeles. And then we turned east and headed back through Arizona up toward the Rocky Mountains in Colorado. And it was somewhere in the middle of Arizona as we were driving across it that mom said to dad, Gordon, she said, we're only about 100 miles away from the Grand Canyon. Why don't we take the kids to see the Grand Canyon? Dad said, Katie, we've got a hotel reservation in Phoenix. And if we detour 100 miles to the Grand Canyon and back, we're going to lose our reservation. And we're not going to be able to find a hotel room tonight. It's August. It's the peak of travel season. Mom said, oh, it's such a shame that our kids won't get to see the Grand Canyon. This may be their only opportunity to ever see the Grand Canyon. Dad said, I don't know why people get so excited about a big hole in the ground. <laughs> Mom gave him a look, and we turned north and headed for the Grand Canyon. <laughs> now, me and my three sisters were in the back seat. We don't know what the decision should be. I mean, we have no idea what the Grand Canyon is. We've never seen it before. But we weren't the decision makers. We were just along for the ride. And in 90 minutes... We were standing on the edge of the Grand Canyon. Oh, my goodness. One of the most amazing things I've ever seen. I'm so glad our plans were disrupted and we detoured to the Grand Canyon. Then we got back in our car, headed back, finally hit the main highway again, headed for Phoenix. We had lost our reservation. So at every hotel we came across, no vacancy, no vacancy, no vacancy, no. Finally, we pulled into a no-vacancy hotel, pleaded with the person at the front desk. They said, okay, you can use the public restrooms, but you have to sleep in your car. So now we were going to have to spend the night, the five of us, in our cramped car. Dad said, I told you so. And it was kind of tense. People were a bit surly. When all of a sudden, as we were trying to go to sleep, out of the blue, my little sister blurted out, good night, Irene. And I don't know why, but for some reason, we thought that was hysterical. And we started laughing. You know how, maybe it was just tension release, right? But we just, all of us just started laughing hysterically. She kept saying, good night, Irene, good night, Irene. And with that, we all relaxed, got some sleep. Now, if our plan for that day had been implemented, I never would have seen the Grand Canyon. And I wouldn't have that beautiful memory of the night we spent in the car together as a family. It's one of those epic days in my life. Not because our plan was executed, but because our plan was disrupted and we went with it and made the best of it. Surrender control. Trust your Papa God. The most powerful prayer you will ever pray is thy will be done. It's the only thing that can truly free you to make the most of your life. Our Abba, our Papa, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth 
in my life, in any situation. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 